This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Season 3 of Behind Gray Walls. Thank you for coming back. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky. All the way from Texas. <laughs> hello, hello. Woo! Yeehaw. <laughs> Yeehaw, y'all. Ah, I am excited to be telling some more stories this season. We've got some good stuff on the radar this uh next 10 episodes yeah sky do you want to start us off this season sure i definitely can do that so i am going to be talking about number 6325 flossie phillips i remember writing her biography and sort of weirdly being like drawn to her Part of that could be that she is one of two female inmates that we actually have oral histories from, and um, Mm -hmm. we will definitely be playing that oral history in certain parts of the episode. So um, as I sort of tell her story, there are times when obviously she can tell it better. The oral history doesn't get in too much of her crime. It, It really just more talks about her time in the prison, which is crucial information. But I was sort of drawn to her as I wrote her biography and so I am excited to be able to tell her story. We will go ahead and get started. Sources, again normal sources, her inmate file. Um, If I remember right there aren't too many files in that folder. Most of the information that I found was actually sort of in our, we have a uh, upstairs in the penitentiary we have a file that just is labeled like women and it just has a lot of general information about the female inmates and a lot of the stuff that I found was actually more in that folder than her actual inmate file. A lot of Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com, there is a website that's called CityTownInfo.com, Wikipedia, FamilySearch.com, Her Oral History, and Wireworks Co. Inc. I had to look up some like sciencey stuff or some science history stuff. That's uh, what I used uh, for that. So the first thing that I want to say, there is a lot of information on Flossie on Ancestry and Find a Grave and uh, FamilySearch.com. And so I've been a little bit hesitant to include it all because if there's a lot of information, that means that there's someone who's out there uploading it. I think because I'm making the assumption that Flossie must have been somewhat open to her experience and the fact that she was willing to give an oral history of her time here. But I do want to make sure that Mm -hmm. I'm really being as respectful to her and her family as possible. And so if this ever reaches her family, that I hope that 
I am treating your mother and grandmother with the respect that she deserves because I think that she does deserve a lot, as everyone um, that we talk about really does, I think. So with all of that said, Flossie Phillips was born Flossie Gladys Sanders on December 6th, 1921 in Malta, Idaho, which is in Kasha County. There is one statesman article that says her name is Florence, uh, that's her full name, but even on her headstone, her name is Flossie, so I think Flossie is just her given name. She is the daughter of Charles Alma Sanders and Gladys Ione Brown. Her father was born in Mexico, but he's actually very white. So his father, so Flossie's grandfather, was actually a polygamist member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in the early 20th century, the prophet of that church came out and said, we are not practicing polygamy anymore. And there was a sect of LDS church members who didn't want to follow that rule. And so they fled to Mexico in order to continue practicing polygamy. And he is one of them. And so he is one of many children born to his father, and his father had uh, many wives. Charles just had one. He got out of that life. There are still members, uh, sort of descendants of those uh, polygamists who fled to Mexico, still alive and still practicing polygamy. So Flossie was the third of nine children. She was the oldest girl of three girls and six boys. Her father, Charles, was a laborer. He worked kind of odd jobs. He had previously owned a general merchandise store in Yale, Idaho, which Mm. was located in Casha County. Yale is actually, it's not even an unincorporated territory anymore. I couldn't even find it on a map anywhere. Uh, So that is no longer a part of Casha County. After her father had owned this merchandise store, he actually sold it because a highway was built that bypassed Yale altogether, which is probably why it died. He moved him and his family to a stock farm. Mm -hmm. Being a descendant of the LDS church, he raised his family in that same church, but he was not not a very good guy. He constantly, quote, mistreated his family. And we can assume that that means abuse. The Casha County Sheriff, his name was George Bray, he had been called in on numerous occasions to investigate complaints that the children had been abused by Charles. And in one instance, the children claimed that Charles had tied them up, beaten them, and then left them without food. Oh, geez. So, yeah, so this is not a good situation. But unfortunately, as is the case with many families in abuse they have to just sort of try to deal with it as much as they can Mm -hmm. in 1938 so uh flossie would have been about 17 maybe 16 her oldest brother linus actually died from a ruptured gastric ulcer so um, i think that was a pretty tough blow for the family Mm -hmm. and then on the day of her 18th birthday on december 6 1939 flossie marries a man named chester phillips in the lds temple in logan utah Because she got married so young, she dropped out of high school, so she um, hadn't even finished her junior year. She never graduated from high school, um, at least in sort of the the traditional sense of going through until you're 18. Mm -hmm. So the 1940 census has Flossie and Chester living in Rupert, probably close to their families. He was also from Rupert, so they probably sort of met in just their activities about town. There is sort of 
confusion about where the family lived. There's a lot of contradicting evidence in the Statesman articles. So I think, as far as I can tell, having read everything, I think the Sanders family lived in Rupert, and they had Mm. some extended family in Burley, which is a little bit south of Rupert. Um, And the Phillips, so Chester and his family, also lived in Rupert. So Joseph, who is Flossie's older brother, so under Linus, he lived in a trailer in Burley. And then Charles, the father, may have bounced back and forth between Rupert slash Yale and Burley. So, according to another Statesman article, Gladys, Flossie's mother, was apparently so sick of Charles' mistreatment and abuse that she divorced him around 1940. Uh, I couldn't find any divorce records to legitimize that, but it actually seems... Confirm, yeah. It seems like that would be the case. And so, I believe that Gladys received custody of the six children still at home. So, according to the same article... Charles, in the year after his divorce, had taken a fancy to a burly widow named Mabel E. Nickerson. And when I say burly widow, I mean a widow from Burley, not like (laughs) the big burly widow. Thank you. Um, (laughs) When I said it, I have it written and I had not read it out loud until just now. So she, I don't know what she looked like, but I don't think she was like big and burly. Um, So apparently though, even when Charles isn't regularly regularly around his kids. He is still mistreating them. Mm. And Chester took notice of this. He really, really disliked how Charles mistreated his wife, even while they were married. And so Flossie and Chester and her older brother, Joseph, who's 20, and her younger brother, George, are just really getting tired of it. And it sort of comes to a head in early February 1941, when Joseph noticed that money he had earned and stashed away in a suitcase in his trailer was missing. And he assumed that his father had taken it and he was mad about it. And so... um, commiserating with his brother and his sister and his brother-in-law. You know, they're talking about how much they hate what Charles is doing. And Chester, again, sort of brings up Charles' mistreatment of Flossie. And Chester supposedly says, quote, we've got to do something about the old man. So um, I'm going to leave us there for just a second to talk about the history of Rupert. I was sort of torn, I think, more of sort of where all of this takes place is actually in Burley, but I do have another inmate planned later in the season whose crime takes place in Burley, and so I'm going to leave that history for that one. So I'm going to talk about Rupert a little bit. So 1889 to 1890, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation wants to control the flow of the Snake River in order to create Uh, new irrigation for farmland projects in Idaho and Wyoming. So in 1889 and 1890, they start to collect data, sort of where the river flows, where that river, where if you were to irrigate, where you could get sort of irrigation to and things like that. And so in 1902, after the passage of the 1902 Reclamation Act, that data becomes available. And so sort of the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and people who want to start irrigating farmlands out west in states like Idaho and Wyoming and Utah um, so that they can sort of start building up land and population and things like that. They take that data and they create the Minidoka Reclamation Project uh, in 1904. And that reclamation project began after the Minidoka Dam, which was built that same year, and 
with the building of the Minidoka Dam, that starts to bring irrigation to southern Idaho, and settlements begin popping up along the Snake River. And Rupert is one of those settlements, and that uh, Rupert is settled in 1906. Originally, the town was named Wellfirst, and a post office was established in July 1905. The first postmaster was a store owner named W.N. Schilling. The name Rupert is explained on a sign in the town that says, quote, Mail was delivered at first by rail to a store by a man named John Henry Rupert. The mail was dumped in the corner in an Arbuckle coffee box. People rummaged through the box for their mail. John delivered mail for only a short time, but his mailbag, which was labeled Rupert, continued to be used for mail delivered. When the first official post office was established in 1905, the town retained the name Rupert. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I guess I think it's interesting that they don't name it after the postmaster, but they name it after the guy who's like bringing the mail. (laughs) Um, But so they name the place Rupert and Rupert is incorporated into the state of Idaho on April 12th, 1906. Because of the building of the Minidoka Dam, hydroelectricity is a useful byproduct of that reclamation project. It wasn't one of the intended outcomes, but it happened and they were like, oh, this is very useful. And so because of that, electricity is pretty cheap and pretty plentiful. And so Rupert actually becomes one of the first cities in the world to have its streets lighted by electricity. It is important to note, though, that Rupert was not one of the first cities to have electricity, period. As far as I can tell, Chicago homes had electricity as early as 1897, thanks to a man named Samuel Insull. But I think sort of what that note is, is it's one of the first cities to have electric street lamps, which is kind of big. And so I got that information about the Chicago and Samuel Insull in that um, Wireworks Co. Inc., It's an article called When Was Electricity Widely Used? A Brief History of Electricity. Um, So that's kind of a a fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And actually, it's a really neat article as well. So if you're interested in sort of the history of technology, feel free to check that out. So Rupert is the county seat of Minidoka County and has been since Minidoka County was founded in 1913. So in 1987, Governor Cecil D. Andrus proclaimed the city of 6,000 residents as Christmas City, and it sort of remains that. Today, city historian Gary Shoresman says, Rupert's always been a Christmas city from the very beginning. And so even now, they really put on quite a production. According to this article, um, which is where that last quote was from, this is by Brian Holmes, published on December 21st, 2016. The title is Rupert, Idaho, Christmas City, USA. Over the decades, um, Rupert residents raise, they've raised thousands of dollars and they decorate the downtown area. They use tens of thousands of lights and a Santa shack. And then Christmas music comes floating into the streets from open office window. And the city's annual celebration begins the day after Thanksgiving when Santa rides into town on a fire truck and flips the switch on all the downtown lights around Rupert. It has been Christmas City since 1987. If you really want to be in the Christmas spirit, then, you know, head on over to Rupert and get your Christmas fix starting the day after Thanksgiving. 
so the population in 2010 was 5,554, and the 2018 estimate is 5,769. So they're staying pretty steady in terms of population. It is mostly all just rural out there, um, farming, uh, potatoes and onions, sugar beets, um, things like that. Mm. So back to where we're at, where Chester says, we've got to do something about the old man. On about the morning of June 21st, 1940, that's a Friday, Mabel Nicholson and Charles are at Mabel's home. Charles is living there for the most part, but he also retains his stock ranch. And I think they sort of split their time between both places. And so Mabel, I think they're supposed to go to the stock ranch together for the weekend, but Charles doesn't feel well. And so he's going to stay home. He's going to take care of the garden and Mabel is going to go to the stock ranch to take care of stuff out there. And so after Mabel leaves, Flossie, Joseph, George, and Chester come to the house and they confront him about what it is that he's done. Things get physical really quickly. Chester may have said something to Charles, which then results Charles lunging at Chester with the help of Joseph. Both Joseph and Chester struggle with Charles, but eventually they overcome him, take him by his overalls, and put him in the rumble seat of a car, folding it down. So for those of us who who don't know, um, a rumble seat is basically where a trunk of a car is now. There was a seat in certain models of cars. I don't think every car had one, Um, but in certain models of cars, it was almost like a uh, what do you call the ones in like where the bed is in the sofa, like a hideaway couch, where yeah. the seat will fold down so that you have a smooth sort of back end of the car. But if you needed to have more pe- more room to seat people, you could just fold it up. Yeah, they shove Charles in there, and then Joseph sits on top, and oh the the foursome take off out of town. And George Sanders said of his father as they're driving out and he's stuck in this rumble seat, he says, quote, he hollered like hell. And so they start driving. They drive through to Lincoln County. And that county is sort of north and west next to Minidoka County. It's like maybe a 30 minute drive ish outside of a small unincorporated territory called Dietrich. They finally stop and Dietrich, according to. Another newspaper article is, quote, about where Kasha, Lincoln, and Blaine counties meet. So it's sort of on the edge of all three of these these counties. So they finally stop outside of Dietrich. They open the rumble seat. They have clothesline that they brought with them, and they tie Charles' hands and feet. They basically hogtie him, and they carry him out to a desert dry wash. And a desert dry wash is just basically a dried-up creek bed. And they leave him. They just drop him there and leave him. Mm. Um, So the the four drive off again, leaving Charles in the desert, tied up and alone. So in other words, they tied him up, beat him, and left him without food. Which, if you remember, is what they claimed he did to them. Right. So Joseph, the oldest brother, said that he only agreed to do this because Chester promised that they would return in a few days and free him if he wasn't able to free himself. Mm. Um, So I think, according to Joseph, it was sort of Chester's idea. And if what Chester said is true, it was sort of meant to just be like teaching him a lesson. Right. So that is on Friday. Tuesday, June 25th, so 
what, four days later, Mabel returns to her home in Burley from the stock ranch and finds that Charles is gone. Um, When she comes home, the doors are wide open and she goes inside and things are, are sort of a mess, but there's also things that are left that shouldn't be left if he purposely had gone somewhere. His glasses are on the radio, his shoes are in the corner, his hat is on the chair, and so she knows that something is wrong. He's mm. he's missing. We don't know where he is. We don't know what's happened. And so she reports him missing to the police. And he's not found for another four days. They found him on Saturday, June 29th. And so obviously once he's found, the police start questioning the family. That's usually the place that um, the police will start. And at first, everyone stays strong. Um, So the police realize that if they're going to get anywhere, they have to sort of find the weak point and manipulate them to give up the full story, unless Mm -hmm. they really didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So on the second day, they go back to George, who's only 16, and they they start talking to him again, and he says, "I, I I don't know anything about it. And then they say, well, listen, Joe confessed everything, so you might as well just tell us. And that is when he breaks down and tells the whole story. And so, obviously, after this confession, George, Joe, Flossie, and Chester are all arrested. They are all taken to not just separate jail cells, but different jails in different towns. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, there were sort of conflicting um, reports as to what town all of them are kept in and it may have changed from before their trial to during it but according to sort of their first arrest george was kept in shoshone right outside where it all happened joseph and flossie were kept in jerome and then chester was kept in gooding and they were all held on first degree murder after a coroner's inquest a jury declared that charles had died from exposure struggle and starvation in the desert dry wash Oh, man. Yeah, so it's like not, oof, that's not good. Um, Before their preliminary trial, all four give separate confessions. Um, Flossie's confession was described as, quote, nearly hysterical, and she repeated over and over, I should have had better sense. Mm, So immediately. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, immediately there is remorse, and um, I think really all four of them, uh, we don't have quotes from Chester, but as far as I can tell, all the siblings sort of said something along the same li- same lines of, we just did it to get even, we didn't mean to kill him, mm-hmm. it was all sort of an accident, and we shouldn't have done it. They plead not guilty on their murder charges, so they have to go to trial. So their trial is set for December. And once their trial is set, this is when they are sent to, like, sort of, again, different jails and so all of the men are sent to the Lincoln County Jail and then Flossie is still in the Jerome County Jail. Mm. So in between July and December, Chester is sent to the State Hospital South in Blackfoot for an unstated reason. He would never appear at his trial because of his commitment to the hospital. Wow, he probably had a nervous breakdown and oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, I would imagine if you had sort of instigated this, you would just feel so bad mm-hmm. in the fact that, like, you you maybe didn't mean to kill your father-in-law, but you did, and it was, like, maybe your idea. Like, yeah. I... Yeah. Severe spiral into depression and, ugh. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about how Flossie 
you know, she's described as nearly hysterical, which Mm -hmm. that's usually used against women specifically. This is a whole other like gender rant I could go on, but I won't. Um, (laughs) But she herself is is beside herself and she just really sort of, as it seems, went along with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if she even took place in like the tying of the hands or anything like that. I think she literally was just like in the car. Yeah. yeah, I think it's that that gang mentality where you've like mm-hmm. got one guy instigating it and then you kind of everybody urges the other person on and had it just been one of them, they wouldn't have followed through with it. But oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So Chester will never show up to trial. The trial finally opens on January 29th, 1941 in Shoshone, Idaho. On the first day of the trial, Dr. F.H. Howard, the county coroner, testified along with other witnesses for the state. And just one day later, so it's the second day of the trial, the trial gets postponed because the defense attorney, Paul Haddock, gets ill. And it is not resumed for a few days later. So they basically get, like, three witnesses for the state, and then they have to postpone it for, like, three days. Mm. And if I were the Sanders kids I would be like oh my gosh I just can we just get on with it but their attorney was sick and so you don't want to proceed without your attorney it was speculated by the newspapers that Gladys would witness for the defense but no court records I had at my disposal uh, could confirm that she did Mm. Uh, right after the crime happened the newspaper had asked Gladys what she thought of the crime and quote she said she was simply stunned Um, which I think is, you know, rightfully so. Um, Even if he's your ex-husband, I think it would come as a complete shock that your children had killed their father. Like that, I I mean, simply stunned was probably the only way she had to articulate what she was actually feeling. They were going to call her for the defense, so she was actually going to speak in defense of her children, probably amounting to the abuse that she suffered that her and her children suffered at the hands of Charles. On February 1st, after about a month of jury trial, Paul Haddock comes to the judge and he says that his clients would like to make new pleas. Um, And he says that they will plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter if they can just end the trial right now. Mm. I think they may have known that they probably would have been convicted of murder in the first degree. I mean... This isn't like you get in a fight with someone and then you're drunk and you pull out your pistol and shoot them. This is clearly they know what they want to do with him. They have the clothesline. They know where he's at. If I were on the jury, I would think that this looked pretty premeditated to me. And so Haddock asks the judge to accept the pleas and Judge Doran Sutphin accepts the pleas. The jury is dismissed and the trial ends. Again, Chester is still in the state hospital south, so um, he never participates in the trial at all. And so all three are sentenced to one to ten years at the Idaho State Penitentiary for voluntary manslaughter. Wow. So in the sentencing, George Sutphin wanted to send George, who's the youngest, to St. Anthony rather than to prison. But he was not allowed to do so under Idaho law. And so I don't know if that had something to do with the fact that he was 16 and that would have qualified him as an adult rather than as a juvenile. I'm not really sure what Idaho law he's talking about. But apparently under Idaho law, he can't send him to St. Anthony. um, So he has to send him to prison instead. Hmm. 
So Flossie arrives at the women's ward on February 6th, 1941. Here are her statistics. So um, we know she's in for voluntary manslaughter after pleading guilty one to ten years from Lincoln County. She was born in Idaho. Her occupation was a housewife. There is no height and weight listed, but she seems like a fairly slim woman. Mm -hmm. Her complexion is medium, her hair is brown, and there is no eye color listed. And according to her oral history, she said that she couldn't remember much of an intake process, except that basically she like went and talked to the warden and maybe gave him these stats, and then he just took her to the cell. She says that she had expected to stay all 10 years because authorities basically kept telling her that because of what she'd done, she would she wouldn't be able to get out early. There's a really good clip of her oral history where she, the interviewer asks how she felt when she first entered the prison. Uh, maybe we could start off by just finding out uh, what you experienced when you first went there, what, what you were thinking and what you were expecting. Well, I was really frightened when I first went there. I don't love to think <laughs> that I was glad to see everybody was friendly and nice to us. You know, they were kind to each other. <clears throat> I never had a bit of trouble with anybody. I just, everybody was as nice as could be, and I was really amazed. But I was relieved, you know, because I didn't know what kind of life being <laughs> to be. At that time, there was quite a few ladies there. In this clip, you know, she says that when she came in, she was she was frightened. Um, she's a young girl, and and she thought she was going to be there for ten years, and so that is a scary prospect to go in and to think that you aren't going to get out of prison until you're twenty eight years old. That would be scary. Do you know the other women that she was incarcerated with? Yeah, so there are um, six uh, six other ones, possibly seven. One of them who's supposed to be in there is Mary Crumroy, but mm. she, oh, I believe, yeah. was in the hospital. So she wasn't actually in the women's ward. And I will talk a little bit about one of those ladies. Um, she was in there with Marjorie Best. She was in there with Daisy Black, if I recall correctly. She was in mm. there with... Um, Someone else. Uh, um, but so there were five, well, four other women, five other women in there with her. And like I said, I will talk about one of those women here in just a second. Oh, so yeah. Flossie's oral history is one of the few primary sources that we have about what life was like in the women's ward. Unfortunately, because she's interviewed about 50 years after she enters, her memory fails her just a little bit in some details. Um, you know, they'll ask, were you able to do this? And she'd say, oh, I just, I really can't remember. It, you know, unfortunately, that's just what happens with time is that you, you forget stuff. You know, I, there's stuff six months ago that all I know is sort of the general details of it. I don't know the mm -hmm. specifics and, and you know, this is 50 years after she comes to the prison, but it's it's a great oral history from one of our female inmates, and I really enjoy it. She's very open and frank as much as she can be. So, And this is actually really interesting. When she's interviewed, and this is again in 1994, she says that she remembered like 40 women being in the women's ward. And her interviewer says, there are 40 women, like there's no way. And she said, well, I, I mean... It seemed to me that there were 40 women. I don't think there actually were. But this gives you kind of an idea of how memories can be distorted and how we mm -hmm. can perceive events differently based on our state of mind in a situation. You know, there were, you know, less than 10. But when you go in there and you're frightened, you don't know how anyone's going to treat you. I think that you can sort of these memories get distorted. And so I thought that was such an interesting detail of her yeah. oral history. 
Definitely. Um, yeah, I remember that and just being kind of shocked when I was like, wait, wait, hold up 40. And then looking that up and being like, that's not right. <laughs> but I imagine yeah. if you're coming from a really rural community where you don't, you aren't in like cramped spaces except for maybe, you know, church on Sunday with 10 people in that tiny little women's ward, it probably felt like 40. Yeah. She did say that as far as she knew, no one had to share cells. And so that's when the interviewer was like, well, if no one had to share cells and there were, you know, like less than 10 people. And she was like, yeah, I guess I don't really know why I thought that there were 40 people. So one of the women who are in of the, you know, six or seven who are in there, one of them is Lida Southard. Mm. And Flossie actually talks about how friendly Lida was. She was the only one who would like sit and talk with you. Here's a clip of Flossie talking about Lida and sort of her time in the women's ward. And then, of course, Lida Southard. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about Lida? She was a, a nice and congenial person. You know, she just was friendly and, and, and she seemed to take an interest in me, I guess, because uh, I was one of the newer ones there, I guess. And, uh, she was uh, always very really kind to us, all, you know, congenial with everybody. Never had any problem that I know of. <laughs> um, who was the matron? I don't remember her name. Can't even remember. It seemed like the only one that I remember that was there once in a while was the warden's wife. The warden's wife? Uh, but I don't know if she was a matron or not. I can't remember her. Do you remember who the warden was at that time? No, I can remember him, but I can't remember his name. <laughs> Um, what was your daily routine? All, uh, each week, um, some of us would do the cooking. And then each week, we, some of us did the cleaning, you know, up and down the aisle. And then, of course, we were supposed to keep our own room clean, you know. And that was mostly what it was. You got up and when they came to let you out of your room, while they just come and <laughs> tell you, well, it's time to go get your breakfast, and whoever's ready getting them, that why they fix the breakfast, and we'd all go and have our breakfast, and then at lunch, whoever would fix that, why, and have them. In between, we could do our laundry, or go outside and walk around the garden, or whatever, and uh, read, or whatever. Some of them would sew, and, you know, make quilts, or anything like that. What time did you get up? It seemed like to me they came around 7.30 or 8, but I can't remember for sure. <laughs> and they meaning? Uh, the ones who come and let us out. Of the guards? Uh-huh. Usually it'd just be one or two, maybe occasionally they came by. And then they'd have a doctor, and every week I think a doctor come by to see if there was anything we needed, you know, or any problem we might have. Or... Did he visit you in the w- women's ward, or did you go over to the main uh, yard to see no, him. No, he came over to Williamsburg. And you might not know who that was, the no. doctor. No. Um, I'm assuming then you were locked down at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what time would that be? Probably around 8, 8 or 9. It seemed like to me it was about, but I, I can't remember for sure. But it was about that time. Um, the, um, I showed you the picture of uh, the one cell that has uh, this fixture in it. Um, could you tell me what you think that that might have been? Well, it might have been a bell because it seemed to me that they had a bell that they um, 
would ring in the morning and then again in the evening when they'd come in to close the doors and unlock them. Were you aware of any any other thing for communication, like what would happen if there had been a fire there and you were locked in your cells? Was there any kind of rules and regulations concerning safety? No, I don't think there was. I can't remember that there was. I was thinking of that the other day, and I thought, what did they ever have? And I, I never even remember thinking about it. And, and we never, apparently never had anything that uh, came up about it, you know. Well, the bell might have been one indicator, but you didn't. Did you have any way of contacting the main uh, prison yard after you were locked down? No, there was no way. So, if someone got ill, was there any way that you could communicate in any fashion? Not that I know of. There was no way that I knew of. Uh, some of the other women had been there a while may have known something, but we never generally had any way of knowing. There weren't routine fire drills, in other words. <laughs> No, well, not during that time that I ever experienced uh, at that time. <laughs> that be, I, I thought of that since then. But at the time, I wasn't even concerned about it, you know, anything mm -hmm. about it. Were there any of the of these women who uh, took you under your wing, their wings, to uh, help you out during this time? Oh, one or two of them were, and, and most of them were all kind of thoughtful, you know. And, and there was only one who, who might have been a little, I don't know, um, kind of odd, but uh, most of them were really kind. And, but I say Lida was the one who was mainly kind and thoughtful and spoke to me more and, and seemed to generally sit down and visit with you. Okay, so as you heard in that oral history clip, you know, while in prison, there's definitely things to do. And Flossie said that she really loved to read. And so she spent most of her time reading newspapers or magazines or sewing. She said that they could get pieces of cloth from their families or from if people could bring it in and so they were able to sew and quilt she said that she gardened a little bit um she said she couldn't remember if they had to garden but she said she would remember going out to the women's ward um where the things uh, you know the flowers were growing and she'd clip a few and take them back to her cell they cooked obviously they did chores and she talked to the other women and had some really interesting things to say about you know, what these women were sort of feeling and thinking as they were in the prison. And the warden's wife, what kinds of things was she interested in? Oh, she liked the flowers, and she liked to see that we had the garden with flowers to walk around in and do things, and that we had food that we needed, you know, and plenty of food, and <clears throat> that we had a, a place to do our laundry and, and take care of our house and things like that. And she seemed, I think she seemed to see that we had books and magazines and papers to read to. And I think she must have been responsible for seeing that we had the fabric to work with if we felt like it, you know, to sew on. Because remember, they did have a sewing machine, old treadle one, it seemed like. But you didn't have any requirements that you had to do anything. No, no. The only thing they had us do that one time was go over and do some housework. Oh, I, I forget how many of us went over, but there was... Um, Oh, it must have been half a dozen or so. And some of us worked in the kitchen and some in other parts of the room, you know, took off the bookshelves and cleaned them and dusted them and dusted the books. And, and I think some of them cleaned the floors and like that, you know. You said that there were some rules. Do you remember what some of the specific rules were besides, 
you know, keep busy with things or anything like that? Mm-hmm. We had to see that the kitchen was cleaned. And I think they had some kind of requirements where to waste the food, of course, and there anyhow. But, you know, but um, that was the main requirement. And then keep the laundry room done up and the other, the showers, I guess, and things cleaned up. That was the main, main thing. And none of the women, you, there was no trouble with any of the women while you were there where the warden had to step in? No, no, I don't remember of anything like that. <laughs> they were all good to get along, I guess. The other women uh, obviously were in there for, you know, different types of crimes and, mm-hmm. and, and as such. I know some of them had robbery and there was uh, a couple in there for second degree murder and there was some forgery and that sort of thing. Um, Did you discuss with the other women about any motivations after this uh, for them to not do what they had done before? Yes. Mm -hmm. What kinds of discussions? Especially those ladies who had forged a check. They said, I didn't realize how awful I was. And, you know, of course they didn't. You know, they thought it was a way to make easy, a little bit of money to feed their kids, I suppose. You know, that, at least that's what they told me. <laughs> but other than that, I don't remember. Of course, they all wanted to try to do better. And when they were paroled, they wanted to not have trouble and have to be back. So. And, you know, as I've said, I think that this is a really great point of view because this is a look at the women and the women's ward that we just don't get from, from anyone else. I'm just so fast. I love her oral history. I think it's so yeah, good. And she's so just so good. candid. It's so uh-huh. great. I love her voice um, too. It's it's like I know, it's it's very like there's such a a rural twang to it. It's uh-huh. so cute. I love it so much. So after about five months, the women in the women's ward start to hear that the governor, his name is Chase A. Clark, he is concerned about how many women are incarcerated, even though it was like ten. And this may have sort of maybe contributed to that um, false memory of having 40 people is like, why would the governor be so concerned of like 10 women if theoretically the, you know, the cell house could hold, I think, up to what did we decide? Like 14, I think. Yeah, I think 16 it was at the max, but 14 was yeah. like with all the cells and then the bunk bed right. out in the in the day room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think that may may have contributed to sort of that false memory. But according to her, the governor is concerned about how many people are incarcerated. And so so she decides to apply for parole and she receives a conditional parole. She left the prison on July 13th, 1941. She served five months and seven days. Her wow. brother-in-law picked her up. Yeah, five months is all she serves. For, for a, a year to a 10 year sentence for yes, killing her yeah. father. That is yeah. no time at all. Wow. No. Her brother-in-law picked her up from the prison because her husband was still in the hospital. Mm. To give you some perspective on sort of the difference between her sentence and her brother's, George, the 16-year-old, he comes in the same day. He is released on October 9th, 1942. And then Joseph is released on December 21st, 1942. So each of them have to serve basically a year and a half longer than she does. Mm. So that, I mean, that gives you sort of a look at, I think, the difference, as we've talked about before on this show, between what society thinks women are capable of and, you know, 
basically that that they're able to get released early because like oh they're women and they could never have committed these crimes in the same way that men can right yeah it's a good comparison for sure Mm -hmm. here's another oral history clip and this one is sort of about her release and she talks a little bit about her parole officer um and and sort of what life was like on parole um i know that you had received a reprieve from the governor and you were out in July from being in there in February. Um, what were the conditions of your parole, and how did that work? Yeah, I came home, and when I first came home, I stayed with uh, the bishop's wife and his family. And um, and I helped um, her with the housework, and then I, I, uh, when he had other people working on his little farm out, I helped a little bit with that. And then after a while, I went over and did some babysitting. So you were cow. you were a member of the LDS Church then, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, and then of course my brother-in-law lived there, and some of the other relatives, my in-laws, and then of course my mother and the younger children lived there too. And, uh, and then later, it seemed like clear into um, I guess it was about a year later, nearly a year later, and. Um, I was home. Uh, my husband's people got a farm out by Eklo, and uh, and then when he came home, we were out there, and, and he did farm work because his, his brother that had the farm worked in the Berlin, so we took care of the farm. And, and the, once or twice, the pearl officer came by to see how we were and how everything went. But he was really nice. But he, it seemed like he got killed. Your parole officer? Uh-huh. Um, about time my parole was up. So I, I can't remember his name even. Carol, I'll remember a few things. <laughs> the uh, the parole wasn't extraneous or anything. You didn't have problems with that. You just no. came back home. Mm-hmm. Did you have problems coming back home? No. Um, the only thing was after a while we got... Um, I, I got to go a time or two to see my husband up to the hospital. And then, um, other than just keeping myself busy, it, I was kind of lonesome. And, of course, my younger sisters were there, and they were going back to school. And so I was glad I got this other job taking care of this, uh, one or two little children. I stayed right in the home and took care of them. And so that worked out pretty good. <laughs> How long was it then before your husband was able to come home and be with you? Well, it seemed like it was about six or eight months. Something like that. Because I think it, the parole was supposed to run for a year. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that about, just almost the time the year was up, this, um, the parole officer was killed in an accident. I felt so bad for him and his family because he was so nice. You know, he, he'd take time to come around and visit you. You didn't have to go somewhere to see him. He would come around and hunt you up and visit with him. See if everything's going all right. Flossie lived in the Burley area for the rest of her life. She and Chester remained married. I think as you heard in that clip, um, he does come back after about six or eight months uh, after Flossie comes back. So he is eventually released from the hospital. They remain married. And they have three children, two boys and one girl. However... Her oldest son died when he was 18 years old in the 60s. He was cleaning a gun, and it accidentally just discharged and uh, hit him in the chest and killed him. 
which is so sad. That's that's a that's a blow. Um, mm-hmm. But you know she does move past it, and she lives a pretty quiet but a full life. Uh, this is according to the obituary that is on findagrave.com. She loved to cook, and they said that she'd always have something on the stove in case anyone would just pop by. She loved to crochet afghans. She loved to garden. She would go camping and fishing with her grandchildren. She loved traveling and enjoyed the outdoors. So she, you know, she really went on after this to sort of be a a happy, productive member of of society, which I love. Yeah. And, um, you know, as I've said, you know, this oral history in 1994, she talks very openly about going into prison as much as she can remember and and I think that that is really admirable in the fact that she doesn't want to hide this past you know she's sort of willing to own up to what happened and the fact that she was in prison and I think that that's awesome and so Chester died unfortunately in 2006 they were married for 67 years wow and yeah uh, which is so sweet like they really loved each other Mm -hmm. and then Flossie passed away on August 2nd 2015 in an assisted living center in Rupert. Um, And according to her obituary, upon her death, she had two children still living, 14 grandchildren, 47 great-grandchildren, and eight great-great-grandchildren. And she is buried in the Rupert Cemetery next to Chester. What a life. Yeah. I know. So that is Flossie. And... um, you can see sort of why I, I really sort of liked her at the end of this, that even though, you know, she participated in, I don't know if it was purposely meant to be a murder, but, it, you know, at the end of the day, it was a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, she really, with this oral history, it was almost like she was almost deciding to sort of take control of that part of her life and, and showed that it didn't, she didn't let it define her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like her response was to end the cycle of abuse, like her and her brothers and her and her husband, like, and she did that, unfortunately, and paid the price for it. Uh, great. So yeah, oral history clips, Sky. Those are that's Thanks. such a revealing descriptor of the women's ward because we don't really have that otherwise. There's mm-hmm. just not a lot of yeah. information. So her yeah. testament to that women's ward is like. That's it. Oh, I'm just about. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think even though there's stuff that she can't remember, like what she can remember is really crucial to our understanding of the women's ward. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, we do have one other oral history from a female inmate, but we probably won't cover that that inmate for a, a couple more seasons. So yeah. Um, I because we have her oral history, I thought it would be really nice to sort of start season three off with um, sort of this new information, quote unquote, new information to our listeners about the women's ward. And um, so that way you can sort of get an idea if you head out to the penitentiary and you go to the women's ward, um, you sort of get an idea of what life might have been like, at least in five months of 1941, sort of what that day to day life was like. Yeah. And I love her friendship with Lida, that Lida is like the, I know, it's so the kind one in there that's yeah. kind of helps her adapt. And oh, man. And, and she's actually, you know, she did say, you know, she's sort of the only one who would just like sit down and talk to you. Yeah. And, you know, that's so, <laughs> based on what we know of Lida, just seems so like 
weirdly terrifying in the fact that she could just turn it on and she was I mean but that also is again a testament to how charming she was and Mm -hmm. likable that she could be and I don't think I included this oral history clip but later in the the oral history the interviewer says so did you keep in touch with any of the other inmates and she says no I don't think I did except I think I wrote Lida Um, and so her and Lida her and Lida wrote a little bit uh, back and forth to one another it didn't seem like she was necessarily like super close to Lida, but they did sort of write each other. And, and, uh, I mean, I think that also sort of speaks to, you know, even in the fact that Lida was this terrifying serial killer. Um, I think it sort of speaks to the way that women have to sort of stick together, um, Mm. in order to sort of make sense of the world around them. I'm actually writing a paper about women's networking and, and, the way that they that women sort of have to use each other's experiences to make sense of the world around them and i think that that is is what we see in sort of these these quasi friendships that are forged is when other women come in you know she said in that oral history clip when i came in i was so frightened but and i thought everyone was going to be really mean but everyone was actually really nice and really cordial mm-hmm. and it's you know at the end of the day they're all in the same situation and they can be mean and they can be horrible or they can talk about their mistakes and be open and honest with one another to sort of learn from each other and to support one another and I think um, even in the fact that Lida is horrifying I think you know she's capable of that as well yeah that's my history gender rant (laughs) (laughs) nice work Sky I like that a lot (laughs) Thank you. Uh, even though I've been, in, I was in a service, so a lot of uh, violence and everything. Prison violence is different. It's more down to earth. It's more real. It's not like uh, an army against another army. For instance, here there was we were waiting to go up into the dining room one day. A fellow tapped me on the shoulder, and a couple of others said, "Excuse me." Excuse me. We thought he was going through the line. To that, he walked up behind another pole and stabbed him and killed him. So. Did you see that? Yes. We were only three feet away. We couldn't miss. What did you do? Walked right by. And how did you how did you feel then? Well, um, this is a type of violence that's really violence. It's violent. It's not. Uh, you know, something you just read about. It's real. When you see real violence, then you have this thing that you think about. All right. Well, who have you got for us today? I have one of my very favorite stories at this prison, and uh, this is an inmate named Kenneth Raymond Hastings, number 8330. And I know a lot about this person, so strap in. Uh, um, sources today, I've got his inmate file, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, of course, Ancestry.com, several oral histories talk about him. The most that you're going to hear is from an inmate, his partner, William Owen. ATF.gov had an article on the National Firearms Act that I used. There's a Wikipedia kind of spreadsheet on 
extreme weather data that I use, Boise Weekly article about the Hollywood market up in the north end here in Boise, a 1977 transcript from the joint hearing before the Select Committee on Intelligence on MKUltra, the CIA's program of research in behavioral modification. So nice. Lots of things I, I went through. And this is something I've been working on this guy's story for so long because it just fascinates me. So Kenneth Raymond Hastings is born September 29th, 1921 in Bismarck, North Dakota. His parents were Floyd and Elizabeth uh, Hastings, and his father was from South Dakota and worked as a conductor for the Sioux Line Railroad, which began in Portal, North Dakota, on the Canada-U.S. border, and traveled southeast through the United States. And his mother, she was actually born in England in 1900, and she moved to the United States in 1909, and Kenneth would remain extremely close to her throughout his entire life. According to the 1930 census, Kenneth had an older brother named Floyd Jr., who was about a year, year and a half older than him. And the family actually had a servant, an 18-year-old girl named Lucille Banksy, whose parents were German and Russian immigrants to the United States. The Hastings family moved to Bismarck, North Dakota in 1900, and around the age of 15, Floyd Sandusky, Kenneth's father, began working for the Sioux Railroad Line. So he had been working there for so many years. And he was a member of the Knights of Columbus, the Brotherhood of Railway Trainmen, the local Elks chapter, and he served in World War I and became a member of the Veterans of Foreign Wars. However, on October 26, 1930, eight-year-old Kenneth was in the back seat with a family friend, and his mother was driving, and his dad was in the front passenger seat. They were driving in front of the North Dakota State Prison at 6.30 p.m., when a vehicle driven by the head of the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension named Gunder K. Osjord at the penitentiary, he, he actually turns to enter the prison grounds and crashes head-on into the Hastings vehicle. A witness behind Osjord spotted the wreck as it was happening and slammed on his brakes and just barely narrowly missed these two crashed cars. And Osjord actually steps out of the car and he looks extremely dazed and he asks where the other car came from and he and his passenger they were unscathed they were just kind of dazed and confused but the cars themselves were totaled and the Hastings family were in a rough shape so responders had to tear the door off the passenger door to pull Floyd out of the vehicle and he was unconscious he had blood streaming from his head he had obvious uh, injuries to his skull kenneth was also unconscious in the back seat and he had several cuts to his head as well his skull as well and witnesses said that after a moment he got up popped out of the car and actually darted out of the car and started running in circles screaming approaching vehicles they pretty much acted as the ambulance and they loaded up the members of the hastings family and and kenneth's friends and drove them to the hospital uh, Floyd was in critical condition. The newspaper stated that there was little hope for his survival. Uh, he did wake up later that evening. He recognized his wife, Elizabeth. And over the next day, it seemed the newspapers reported that he seemed to improve. Kenneth is looked at, and it, it's noted that he just suffered a slight concussion of the brain and a couple scalp wow. lacerations, but he was released actually to go back to his home and hang out with his brother, Floyd Jr. After a promising day, Floyd's condition turns to the worse. And on oh, October no. 29th, 1930, with his family by his side at the hospital, Floyd Sr. drifts off 
he had finally succumbed from these injuries. The newspaper reported that nearly 500 people attended Floyd Hastings Sr.'s funeral, and mostly friends and co-workers from the railroad, and he received full military honors with a firing squad and a performance of taps at his funeral. So 500 people from the community, from Bismarck, North Dakota, and the surrounding areas wow. came for this thing. Yeah, I mean, as you said, he's he's quite a you know, well-respected figure, so that's... Yeah, well-connected and all these clubs. Oh, yeah, man, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Elizabeth is like, you know, this can't happen. A week later, she actually sues Gunder K. Osgeord for $30,000 for his negligence. Whoa. Yeah. And for violating these traffic laws, crossing over the line and turning out in front of the family, she stated that Floyd was the sole means of support for Elizabeth and the two boys. The jury actually took her side, and Osgeord was forced to pay $15,000 after three and a half hours of jury deliberation. Wow. He attempts to counter the measure, saying that there were errors in the case, and the chief error among those is that uh, there was a failure on the part of the defense to prove that Hastings actually came to his death as a result of the accident. The case didn't appear in the newspapers after this, so I think it was probably settled outside of court, but I can imagine that this is probably like the beginning of Kenneth's distrust and resentment for any sort of authority like this is his first interaction with a prison employee and right they're trying to say that that they're not going to pay up oh my gosh yeah. so yeah yeah and as we discussed like in douglas van vlack's case that there was a that brain injury that he may have suffered which could have affected right. him for the rest of his life so when i found this story uh, it was just one of many things kind of leading up to his criminal career uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Um, the family, they try to move on. Elizabeth remarries on Thanksgiving Day in 1934, about three years later, to this laundryman and World War I veteran quartermaster sergeant named Oscar B. Ryan. And it appears that the uh, the Hastings boys weren't, weren't very big fans of him because he was a little bit overbearing, and uh, Kenneth would later say that he was abusive to his mother. Mm. Floyd and Kenneth learned to work the machines at this laundromat, and uh, they learned how to tailor clothing from their new stepfather, which were skills that they would oh. carry on for the rest of their lives. Yeah, um, those are very useful skills. Absolutely. I wish I had been taught how to, like, tailor clothes. Oh, me too. <laughs> well, it's never too late, Sky. <laughs> my goal for 2020 is to learn how to sew. <gasps> I'm cross-stitching instead. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's a step in the it's right fun. direction. I'm addicted to it. It's it's a fun th- anyway. Yeah, I bet it's a good like meditative practice because like you have to focus so deeply. Yeah, I, I, on patterns. I definitely and... just turn on RuPaul's Drag Race and mindlessly <laughs> like cross stitch away. Nice. I like that. <laughs> well, you anyway. would have gone wrong with Kenneth. So. The next few years, Floyd and Kenneth actually appear in the Bismarck Tribune after passing their swimming tests in a local pool. Uh, they compete in essay contests, and uh, they are acknowledged for their good grades at St. Mary's School, a Catholic school they went to. But the tragedies in Kenneth's early life aren't over. In July 1936, Kenneth's 78-year-old grandfather passes away due to heart disease and the heat. And we all know this is during the Great Depression. We know those photos of like the Dust Bowl and, and the hunger that was going on at that point. 
But uh, the summer of 1936 was one of the most severe heat waves in our country's history. The record highest mm. temperatures ever recorded in North Dakota, a record still held to this day in that state, was 121 degrees Fahrenheit set on July 6th, 1936 in Steele, North no. Dakota. This is 10 that days. Is... Right. 121 degrees. That's so, so hot. That's 49.44 oh degrees Celsius for our European listeners. But this is... 121 degrees is 10 days before his his grandfather passes away and is most likely the contributing factor to his death. This 1936 heat wave actually led to the deaths of over 5,000 people in the United States. And, you know, in many of the state and city high temperature records were set in 1936 and still to this day have not been broken. There's a big heat wave that uh, swept the country in 2012. Some of those records were changed, but uh, not a lot of them. And I actually looked up Idaho's, of course. Our record temperature was hit two years prior, 1934, at 118 degrees on July 28th in Orofino, Idaho. So 1934 is when our highest temperature was hit. Rough. Oh, that like hurts me so much. Right, that's so, so miserable. Hot. And that's yeah. before like air conditioning. You just yeah. have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Like, and so many farmers oh in the gosh. in the Midwest. Yeah, they're they're breathing in this dust and just wallowing in this horrific heat. Ugh. Oh, um, I'm like hot just thinking about it. Oh my god. <laughs> right. Well, the sadness doesn't end there. Two months later, in September of 1936, Kenneth's older brother, Floyd Jr., who's 15 years old, a junior in high school, suddenly dies. The coroner states that it was due to a sudden onset heart issue, which was probably spurred on from the summer's heat. And Floyd's classmates actually serve as his pallbearers. So... In just a span of of six years, Kenneth loses his father, he loses his grandpa, and he loses his brother. And it's the Great Depression. There's just, it's just an impoverished time across the country, and you can only imagine how heavily this probably weighed on Kenneth. He ends up dropping out of school a couple years later in 10th grade to enlist in the Army at Fort Snelling, Minnesota. He quickly adapted himself and and got in with the tailoring units and working with machines he was a machinist and these things of course he continues to use throughout his his future careers as well now he was a a pretty uh he's pretty good at picking up girls it sounds like he's pretty charismatic pretty likable he was married not long after enlisting the marriage was described by his mother as being done because he had to. Uh, The had to was probably a result of a premarital pregnancy, which wasn't allowed in the Catholic Hastings home. And Kenneth, uh, he enlists in the the army July 9th, 1940. So it's like right at this time. And this young couple, they don't end up staying together. Uh, They officially divorce December 7th, 1941, uh, a year later, which I don't know if that that date rings anything to you yet but uh <laughs> it does indeed <laughs> yeah so Kenneth's mother and stepfather they actually moved to seattle where they bought a building and turned it into a dual dry cleaning business and cafe which they managed and operated themselves and they called the cafe betty's cafe after elizabeth uh betty mm. and mm-hmm. kenneth 
he had already moved on with another woman named Claire Dell McCree, whom he wed on November 24th, 1941, which is actually like two weeks prior to his yeah. divorce being finalized. That's not a lot. <laughs> right? I know. I was trying to figure out like how, but I, he, it must have been like a desertion thing. And I, for some reason, he was not in trouble for this. But uh the wedding certificate is made in Seattle, Washington, and it's uh, most likely at a time that Kenneth was on leave from his service while he was stationed over there at uh, Fort Lewis. Uh, of course, you know, December 7th, that date I just mentioned, the day that will live in infamy, that is the day that the Japanese actually attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor, and it thrusts mm -hmm. our country into war. So... He just gets married to a woman that he he really likes, and now stationed at Fort Lewis, he is thrust into the 7th Infantry Division, Company M, and he goes full force into the military. And we're going to hear a couple things about his personality. He did not mess around. If he was going to do something, it was going to be 110%. And he rose through the ranks from private to staff sergeant and as a as a staff sergeant he learned to lead other men and uh, Haley will discuss the 7th Infantry in this week's Stool Pigeon Saturday so if you want to hear about some of the things that he was involved with you can do that by listening this Saturday but Kenneth had an issue with authority and he was actually convicted by a special court martial in August 1942 for absenting himself from his station without proper leave and was sentenced to perform hard labor without confinement for two months and have $25 detained from his pay for those two months. And I can only speculate that it was probably to visit his wife and his family, knowing that in just a couple months he would be shipped over to Japan. And sure enough, October 24th, 1942, he is sent overseas uh, to help with the war effort. And he doesn't return to the United States until June 26th, 1945. So just about, just under three years that he's there. And he's returned to Fort Snelling, Minnesota, and uh, he actually received several distinguishing awards for his service, including seven battle stars, four arrowheads for invasions, three campaign ribbons, a bronze star medal, a purple heart of two clusters and two others, and an oak leaves cross. And these were for his role on the grounds, you know, invading the Japanese holdouts. And he suffered some pretty tremendous wounds in the fight. And when I talk about his prison chart, I'll kind of tell you about some of the things that he suffered during the mm -hmm. war. Now, later on, Chaplain Orville Stiles, who worked regularly with Kenneth and whose voice you heard in the Raven Snowden episode, described Kenneth Hastings as one of the most decorated soldiers of World War II. A man by the Ken name of Kenneth Hastings was considered probably one of the most dangerous men out there at one time. In fact, he had knifed Frank O'Neill, the associate warden, when Frank O'Neill was taken into the VA hospital over here for treatment. He was the most decorated veteran of World War II. And he escaped up into the hills. Uh, Hastings was the most decorated victim? Yes, he had one more battle star than Audie Murphy, the movie star, who was supposed to have been the most decorated. Audie Murphy had one higher decoration than Kenneth Hastings. Audie Murphy had the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's the only one that Kenneth Hastings didn't have, but he had more battle stars and more 
the same number of decorations. Family members would report later that the war completely changed Kenneth. The term PTSD, of course, doesn't appear until the 1970s. And, you know, for World War II veterans, the disorder wasn't really treated. Most of them turned to self-medication. And Kenneth did just that. He turned to alcohol and the thrill of committing crime. So he deserts his wife, whom divorces him. And uh, he's arrested several times for different traffic violations, probably speeding and doing reckless things. And he's charged with non-support in 1946 from his ex-wife, which he pays up and she drops the charges. And uh, it appears that he never really reconnected with her again. His first stint in prison was in the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island on October 2nd, 1947 for strong arm robbery and he was sentenced to three years at the federal penitentiary. Now, I couldn't find information about the actual crime. There were no mentions of it in newspapers that I could find. It's it's really difficult to pull files for federal prisoners uh, from mm-hmm. this far back. So I'm still trying to work with the uh, National Archives to hopefully one day get a hold of these files just to see what his, his incarceration was like and see what he served for, uh, what he robbed if it was a, a individual on the street or if it was a bank or any number of things mcneil island it is in the south puget sound southwest of tacoma washington near fort lewis and where douglas van vlack was living about 10 years prior and it was a federal penitentiary from 1875 to 1981 when it was turned over to the washington state department of corrections And that finally closed in 2011. It was the last island prison in the country. Now, while in prison, Kenneth made a close friend with a fellow inmate named Ivan Baker. And he would regularly spar with Baker, and they would wrestle each other and spend most days working together. Kenneth was paroled from McNeil Island on February 14, 1949. In June, just four months later, he's readmitted on a two-year sentence for the charge of violation of National Firearms Act. And this law was actually enacted in 1934 to help regulate the sale of firearms and required shotguns and rifles with barrels less than 18 inches in length, so like sawed-off shotguns, uh, certain firearms described as any other weapons, machine guns and firearms with silencers and mufflers, all of these things had to be registered with the Secretary of the Treasury. So basically, it was the beginning of of registering guns, these high-power, high-ballistic guns. So I found an article in the Henderson Daily Dispatch in North Carolina from March 20th, 1946, talking about World War II trophies that a lot of the soldiers came back with. And it said, many returning servicemen may not be aware of the federal requirement. The registration is not an attempt to deprive veterans of war trophies, but rather an effort to prevent the deadly weapons from falling into the hands of criminals. And, you know, I, again, I don't know what gun that Kenneth had to convict him of this National Firearms Act charge. It may have been a trophy from a Japanese soldier that he took. But, yeah, I don't have that information. I I wish I did. But uh, he spends two years for that, and he's released from the National Firearms Act charge and returned to his conditional pardon on January 23rd, 1951, for the first charge of strong-armed robbery. So he is on parole from that first charge once again. 
Now he's free to roam, and he meets up with another veteran and ex-convict named William Owen. And William was from Tanover, California, and had a Welsh father, a full-blooded American Indian mother, and she was from the Wallachie tribe in Northern California. And he had spent time in prison for forgery, grand larceny, and robbery. So they shared both a military background and a prison history with each other. And they hit it off right away. They become really close friends. Ivan Baker, he's actually released from McNeil Island, and he joins up with Kenneth and William. Soon after this, the trio picks up a woman named Ruth Seckinger while traveling through Pocatello, Idaho. They were up to no good, and it's unclear how many robberies they actually commit during the summer of 1951. Kenneth and William would admit that the quartet committed an armed robbery at the Hideaway Club on Highway 30. They stop at the Highway Club on September 4th, 1951. At about 8.55 p.m., Ivan, Kenneth, and William enter the tavern wearing what the victims described as working clothes resembling those worn by mechanics or welders. They didn't cover their faces, but they all had bandanas around their necks, so it was kind of a uniform that they had on. One of the trio walked up to the bar and asked for a straight shot, and after the liquor was poured and drank, the trio pulled out their guns, lined up the five patrons and the bartender at the bar, forced them to keep their hands on the counter, and began stealing rings, watches, billfolds, a table model radio, two bottles of whiskey, and $114.20 from the till. The phone cord was ripped from the wall, and uh, outside, the bartender noticed a fourth man, who was actually Ruth Seckinger, who's waiting with the car running. They ran out the door with about $850 in valuables. And uh, any idea of how much money this was, 1951, $850, how much that would be now? The economy was pretty up by then, so I'm going to say, like... Maybe $5,000? Oh, that's a pretty good guess. It was 8600 okay. So the bar owner, he actually runs to a nearby motel. He calls the police, and uh, they get away. The next night, the quartet, they actually commit a, a burglary in the nighttime at the Caldwell Leather and Canvas Company, where they stole dozens of shirts and scores of pieces of leather goods. They headed east mm. towards Atomic City, and hoping to wait for the heat to go down uh, in the city and that, you know, all the police are looking for him. And it was around this area that their partner, Ivan Baker, actually decided to part ways with the group. On September 7th, 1951, at roughly 10.45 a.m., Ruth drove up to the Hollywood Market in Boise's North End on the corner of Residue and 8th Street. The market had been a staple of Boise's North End since it opened in 1901 by the N.J. Davis and Company grocers. And this, this little spot exchanged hands over the years, becoming the Corner Grocery in 1914, the C.E. Sharp Grocery in 1921, York Grocery in 1923, and finally the Hollywood Market from 1930 until it closed May 8, 2011. Anyone, you know, who's been through the North End probably remembers this this building and it had this the famous hand-printed Hollywood Market sign that blue markers all around it and uh, another sign that said happiness is spoken here today it's a yoga studio and they try to keep that that happiness is spoken here motto alive in 1951 it was owned and operated by Burt McCurry a 54 year old man and his wife 
Williams stated that prior to the robbery, they had discussed where we would get money to get us back to California, where I worked in a foundry. We tried to find a place to sell a couple of watches downtown, but were unsuccessful. We then decided to hold up the store. I told Miss Seconder to start the motor of the car. I took the guns from the car. They were a Spanish automatic and a Colt revolver. I took the revolver myself. Kenneth and William enter the store and walk up to the counter. Bert's wife is sitting at a card table in the store counting the previous day's bank deposit, and Kenneth walks up to her and asks for a pack of cigarettes. She got up, walked around the counter to grab them, and when she turned around, there was a gun pointing at her. Bert was at the rear of the store where he was pulling meat from the freezer when he heard the two men holding up the joint, and William rushed to the back of the store and shoved the gun in the man's face. He said, I got to the back of the store. I pulled the gun out and pointed it at him, said, this is a holdup. Mr. McCurry took one or two fast steps and pulled out a meat cleaver. He raised it over his head and started to come at me. I said, don't do that. He kept coming. I fired a shot over his head. He didn't stop, and I started backing out of the store. It looked like he was going to throw the cleaver. I yelled to Hastings, let's get out of here. I told Mr. McCurry to stand still. He kept coming. I fired a shot past him. I didn't want to hurt him. He was still waving the cleaver over his head. I tried to back out of the front door, but I missed the opening and hit the side, and I fired again. I didn't intend to kill him when I fired the last shot. I never stopped backing, but Mr. McCurry didn't stop. I had forgotten all about the robbery. All I wanted to do was get out of there. I was afraid for my life. Bert was about seven feet from William when he fired that third bullet. William claimed he, he was actually aiming for the cleaver. The bullet hit Bert near the center line of the upper chest cavity, rupturing an artery, shattering his spinal cord, and he stumbled forward, paralyzed onto the floor as William darted outside. They hop into the car, and Ruth actually turns out onto 8th, and the trio head west towards the Oregon border, and about 40 minutes later, they're actually pulled over in Nampa. William hit his gun under the seat cushion, but Kenneth reached for his, which was on his side, as an officer approached the vehicle, the arresting officer told him not to even think about it. And uh, mm. he, he, ra- he raised his hands up and they all stood up and uh, were arrested without any issue. When the police investigated the car, they found the loot from the previous robberies, the billfolds from the bar and like leather goods from that Caldwell place. So there was a lot of evidence against this trio. While locked in the Ada County Jail, They got word that Burt McCurry had actually died from the wounds on September 9th, 1951. Kenneth and William were looking at a charge of murder in the first degree with the chance of capital punishment. And of course, you can receive first degree murder charge if at any point, if you are committing a felony, any sort of felony, and somebody dies in the act of that felony, you can receive this. And uh, sure enough, we'll see this happen. This is a quote by William Owen taken by Stacy Erickson on April 2nd, 1981 in Boise. Well, everything happened so fast, there was really no feeling of, well, my feeling was a throwback from the service part. If a person is going to kill you, you kill them first to survive. There are two versions of the story. The newspaper would state that this was an armed robbery gone awry that resulted in the grocer's death. But William's story is slightly different. And then this is his oral history. It says, uh, This lady had been beaten severely by her husband, who I knew. I knew both of them quite well. 
So when I asked him about it and said, well, how come? Why don't you beat on somebody more your own size rather than this little lady? And he reached for his gun, but he was too slow. So consequently, I ended up with a first-degree murder charge. He had a gun in one hand and a meat cleaver in the other. And then the interviewer asked, were you planning to take money from the store or anything? No, we had money. So did you feel like the newspapers had, they blew it out of proportion. Our attorneys couldn't get it straighted out. However, they made this deal with the court to quiet everything down and just come down with a murder charge. They thought that that would be enough. So that's the way it came about. You know, it's difficult because I don't want to malign the victim here with this oral mm-hmm. history. So, of course, take William's words about being this kind of white knight protecting Burt McCurry's wife with a grain of salt. Kenneth, during the trial, wrote that they would not receive a, a, a fair trial with Judge Winstead, who had recently called for the death penalty of Idaho's two youngest men to be executed. And that was Ernest Waldrath and Troy Powell. And they were executed actually that year, April 13th, 1951. So Kenneth knew that this judge, he leaned pretty heavily on law and order and the capital punishment sentence. So the court actually listens and they change the judge to Judge Kolsch. And Kenneth asked for a separate trial from William. And he stated that he had abandoned the robbery before the grocer sustained the fatal wound. Because after the first shot, he actually ran out the door because he was standing next to it. He didn't witness the second or the, the third, the killing shot. The judge actually balked at Kenneth at his attempts for a separate trial, and he set the dual trial date to the Monday following Thanksgiving on November 26th. And they did separate Ruth, who was being tried for assault with attempt to commit robbery instead of murder in the first degree. Now, the trial actually lasted three months to the day, and both men pled not guilty. Kenneth kept reiterating that he never fired a shot and wasn't even in the market when Burt was shot. It was all self-defense on the side of William Owen, whose first and second shots were aimed above Burt's head to scare him, and the last one was aimed at the meat cleaver. Uh, At the trial, the two insisted that they never wanted to hurt anybody during the robbery, and Kenneth stated this, this line, that they had bargained for robbery, but not for violence. He also discussed his lengthy military career, the wounds he suffered in the war fighting for his country, and all the decorations he received, but it didn't appear to sway the jury. And this defense of like bargaining for robbery but not for violence is pretty ridiculous. Uh, In the closing arguments for the prosecution, the prosecutor actually said, we know what the men have done in this case, and it comes back to the same thing. They have no respect for society. Both of these defendants are leeches off society, as it were, by perpetrating robbery. Does society have any duty to these men? They have leached off of society in the past. Should these men continue to do that? Should they be supported by the state of Idaho? This was a little bit controversial because it obviously kind of led the jury to aim for the death sentence, the death conviction for them. It would come up later in in several appeals. Uh, The self-defense testimony of William was obviously weak, and the prosecuting attorney said that if that were the case in Idaho, it would make our state a robber's paradise. And he said, uh, Mm -hmm. having deliberately planned to rob the deceased at gunpoint, appellants had no right to anticipate that he would cower before them and meekly surrender his money. On the contrary, the law affirms the right and duty of a citizen to resist such felons. 
After just an hour and 28 minutes, the jury actually finds these two men guilty on November 30th, 1951, of murder in the first degree. They had the right to recommend punishment, and they recommended both men be led to the gallows. The judge Mm -hmm. agreed on December 7th, 1951. He sentenced the two to hang for their crime. And of course, Ruth, she is given a separate trial, and uh, she is actually charged with assault with intent to commit robbery. This is another little clip from William and the interviewer asked, now, how did you feel about her being charged with assault with intent to commit robbery? And then he said, well, we thought it was quite unfair because actually she didn't know anything about it at the time. She didn't know the people. She didn't know the town. She was originally from Pocatello. So she just thought we was going in to buy some cigarettes or something. Although we had been together the night before and we had had lunch together the day before, Ruthie was never one to really make friends or to get close to people on first notice. So she really didn't know who it was. She didn't know it was the same lady we'd had lunch with or whether it was the same man we'd had lunch with. So we thought it was quite unfair. However, we felt had there been 10 people with us, they would have all been charged the same thing. So Kenneth and William, they apply for a commutation the day after Christmas in 1951, and it would be 13 months before the Supreme Court would get around to their case. Now, Kenneth's intake, he is number 8330, crime, murder in the first degree, sentence, death, date received December 7, 1951, race, white, age, 29, nationality, American, birth, September 29, 1921, in Bismarck, North Dakota, eye color, brown, hair color, dark brown, height, 5 feet, 9.5 inches tall, weight, 155 pounds, complexion, medium, deformities, middle finger of right hand amputated at first joint, circumcised, no, vaccinated, yes, tattoos, several, liquor, yes, smoke, yes, gamble, no, dope, none, Religion, Catholic. Education, quit in the 10th grade. Name of last school attended, Mott Public School in Mott, North Dakota. Marital status, divorced, occupation, machinist and heavy-duty mechanic. How long in Idaho? He listed transient. Employers, he said the Birch Johnson Littell Construction Company at Fairbanks, Alaska as a carpenter. 1947 through 49, McNeil Island, and then 1951, Rainier, Inc., Sappho, Washington. His tattoos are pretty interesting. He had uh, birds on both sides of his chest, a daisy on his right inner forearm, and an unfinished Mo cartoon below that. And I think that's Mo from the Three Stooges. <laughs> he had Juanita spelled out above a heart on his right outer forearm, a heart and scroll on his left shoulder, Lita and Kenny on a scroll on his inner right arm, a heart and scroll with the name Anna May on his outer left forearm, and a squirrel on his left calf. Uh, a the, squirrel? Yeah, a squirrel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next tattoo I want. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> the Bertillion also listed scars all over his forehead, his hands, his left thigh, his knees, and stated he had semi-flat feet. And all these were uh, most likely from his, his wartime service. Now, the two condemned men were sent to uh, two death row cells in the 1890 cell house, filling in where Idaho's only double execution, the youngest walrath 
and Powell that I just mentioned had been sitting uh, until their execution on Friday, April 13th, 1951. Life on death row for the duo was pretty boring. The other men in deadlock were led out of their cells to pace back and forth together along the Rose Garden facing side of the cell house, and Kenneth and William, they were led out individually for one hour a day each. A guard was set on death watch to sit outside the two death row cells and keep watch. The cells were regularly searched to avoid any sort of Douglas Van Vlack issues. Questionnaires were sent out to family members asking about their personality, education, and other important information to cross-reference the information the inmates brought in. And Kenneth's son actually wrote in about his father's life, stating that Kenneth was overly generous, lovable nature, especially kind to children, also to his mother. And when asked what his father's ambitions were, his son wrote, to have a home and family. So how old was his son at this point? So at this point, this he would have been probably 11 or 12-ish. Huh. Yeah, I know. that I was very surprised. This document, of course, is heavily redacted, so I couldn't dig any further. I don't know what uh, his son's name was. I couldn't track him any further than this one sheet of paper. Hmm. When asked what the chief reason for his dad's misconduct, his son writes, the effect of his war service. Previous to that, he was a quiet, home-loving guy. On top of his death sentence, a U.S. Marshal actually wrote a letter stating that uh, if his sentence was commuted to life and if he ever was released from prison, they would like him back at McNeil Island to serve the rest of his time there for that original strong-arm robbery since he committed this crime while on parole. So you can imagine the pressure he's under right now. After 13 months and three weeks on death row, they are finally released into the prison with a new sentence, life in prison on January 29th, 1953. In the courthouse, Kenneth is actually seen grinning with his attorney to the news while William sat solemnly with the information. And then I've got an oral history here where they ask, how did you feel when you heard the sentence? And he says, it left us kind of numb. There's a thinking, well, maybe they made a mistake or we only had a few days to go. We didn't know whether they'd made a mistake or, you know, if this is an accident. And then he talks about like watching the gallows being constructed and uh-huh. nobody would admit it to him. And then like the all the other guys in the cell house were listening to the radio and they all cheered, but Kenneth and, and William weren't listening. So they're like, what? And people, all of them were yelling and they're like, what are you talking about? And they, they asked the guard, like, what are they talking about? And he's like, well, I'm not sure. And th- soon after, that's when the warden came in. It was like, all right, fellas, you've got a life sentence and... William describes his first orientation in the yard from the captain, and the captain said, Now you go down to the yard, and if you want to do something, all right. And if you don't, all right. Just loaf around and get used to the place and get on your feet again after being in a cell for 13 months and three weeks. And that's pretty much what they did. Uh, Now, during the incarceration, Kenneth and Ruth actually attempted to keep up their relationship. So they were actually talking about marriage. But it appeared that this ended when some letters were discovered being passed from the men's prison to the women's ward. (laughs) And uh, Mm -hmm. Ruth was released on parole to her parents on January 31st, 1954. And she was granted a final release a year later on February 14th, 1955. And seeing no opportunity to wait around for Kenneth and rekindle their relationship, she actually moves on with her life and marries a man and moves to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. 
Now the jobs. Kenneth's file provides a fantastic snapshot into the different roles and jobs inmates held at the institution. His file highlights the day where he was stationed, and he began his prison career, actually, the day he's released on a life sentence in the construction field. And this construction work was to build what we call four house now, which is the four tier cell house that could uh, hold 320 men. And it was wired up with radios in each cell. You can buy earbuds and plug those into the wall and, and listen to some music. And uh, I had, you know, flushing toilets and sinks. It had plumbing and electrical work. They had outlets. It was a pretty state of the art thing that he was a part of. Kenneth doesn't hold on to this position for long. Other inmates weren't helping their cases. A tunnel is discovered in the prison yard mm. five months into their life sentence on June 20th, 1953. It was thought that Kenneth and William were involved, so they were locked in Siberia. Is that the tunnel that is trying to go under the wall? Exactly, yep. Right behind in those sheds? Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you come to the old pen, if you go to the wall like nearest where uh, Siberia is, you'll see a little placard that said there was a tunnel discovered here. This is the tunnel that they are referring to in 1952. And here you can listen to inmate Robert Tisdale, who was in for burglary in the nighttime, talk about this tunnel uh, from an oral history taken on April 13th, 1982 with Mike Walters. When did you enter the hole? Well, the first time was in 50. June 52. And that was for escape. Digging the tunnel with Kenny Hastings, Bill Owens. Of course, Kenny Hastings and Bill Owens didn't dig the tunnel. We, Roger Thatcher and I, dug that tunnel. And we decided because Kenny Hastings and Bill Owens had too much time that we'd let them in on it so they could use it after we went out. And we didn't get out that time. We got picked up. And then William Owen, there's a, this is a little oral history from him. Now what happened when you went there? Well, I was sitting at a desk typing and uh, I was typing out the cell changes. I remember quite well changing the cells. I was moving one cell block to another. And uh, the captain came in and said, well, old top, he said, I'm going to have to lock you up a while. I said, okay. I said, what cell am I going into? So he told me, and then I just typed it out and went down, packaged up all my things in the cell and came back and then went to Siberia. What for? Well, I didn't know at the time. And it was, uh, I think, about six months later that I found out what for. And I really didn't know anything about it. And Kenneth and I had both ended up there. It seemed this fellow, uh, or two of them, had worked in the dining room. And uh, they had gotten into a little building, which is not here now, uh, back of the where the library was. There was a small shed back there, which contained a, a restroom. Then there was a storeroom there. And they had started tunneling out under the wall. And inasmuch as I was in a position to know everything that was going on, which I really didn't, because I was the last person that they would let know. Why would that be? Because I was working in the captain's office. And I assigned cells and things like that. And if men had to go on with late lockups, 
I typed it off and everything, and how late they could stay out and all that. So consequently, they wouldn't have let me know if they uh, could have. So inasmuch as we were friendly with these people, there were six of us went over there, and only one was connected with it. Yeah, so we have that down. Is one thing I was going to ask you about is that in the newspaper it said that you and Kenneth Hastings were two of the people that were trying to tunnel out. Yeah, so that's see that was that's the odd thing that goes about because here I didn't know anything about it. Really? If they had needed a flashlight, I could have gotten them a flashlight, but they didn't say anything. And how many people were involved in that then? I think there were only three uh, in the actually tunnel digging. But six of us were locked up for it, and only one of those was the ones concerned. Now, why Kenneth Hastings? Well, uh, he being my partner, everything we did, we did together. Uh-huh. So they said, well, if we get one, we'll have to get both of them. Did he know about the tunnel? No, he didn't. <laughs> well, and, like, I guess I just don't understand when the captain comes in he's just like alright it's time to go I gotta lock you up and he just was like okay instead of being like why right yeah yeah I know it's with all oral histories you kind of have to have a grain of salt with them Um, so they are released from Siberia in December and sent to deadlock near their old death row cells in the 1890 cell house where they remain for another six months totaling a whole year that they are punished for a tunnel that both of them claim they didn't know anything about. Upon his release back into the yard, Kenneth got a job in the inmate's tailor shop for a week. Then he's transferred to number two yard to work in the vocational machine shop, and he joins the prison softball team. Was it harder on him, do you think, than you, or did you have different attitudes? No, our attitudes are very similar, although he was more aggressive than I was. How do you mean? Uh, in everything, whether it's playing ball or whatever he was doing, he was more aggressive than I would have been. This aggression resulted in Kenneth breaking his leg on the ball field on August 1st, 1954. He was in the present hospital for a short time, then transferred to a cell house to heal and listed as old and disabled on his form because he couldn't do manual labor. On September 22nd, he got the job as a tool checker in number two yard, giving him access to a myriad of tools. The next morning, he had an appointment at the VA hospital in Boise's north end to have his dentures refitted. And so one thing I didn't mention before, he did not have teeth. He had, he had dentures most of this time. The associate warden, uh, Frank O'Neill. Why didn't he have teeth? I can't, I don't know. It might have been due Ugh. to drinking and not taking care of himself. That's my guess. I mean, would they have gotten knocked out during any of his duties? That's It may have crazy. been. I, I've never found any reference as to why he lost his teeth. But uh, he was regularly taken to uh, the, the VA to have his dentures refitted and his gums looked at. A day after he gets this job, September 22nd, as a tool checker, they take him to the VA hospital in Boise's North End, and Associate Warden Frank O'Neill actually takes him personally to the hospital, helping Kenneth, who had a plaster cast on his left leg from the ankle to the knee, and who had to walk with crutches on, and they didn't think he needed to be handcuffed. After the appointment around 9.15 a.m., O'Neill stopped at the corner of First and Jefferson, right where St. Luke's Hospital is in downtown Boise. A man with a, a meat truck, a meat packaging truck, 
pulled up behind the associate warden and noticed that there seemed to be fighting going on in the car ahead of him. He also noticed that there was a number printed on the back of the passenger's shirt. So he realized this is an escape attempt by a prisoner from the prison. Oh my. So he jumps out of the car. He runs over to the passenger's side where he sees Kenneth actually stabbing the associate warden with a four-inch oh, pocket no. knife, which breaks in half while he's thrusting it. Uh, and Kenneth, so yes. Kenneth starts kicking at O'Neill and actually kicks him onto the ground. And Kenneth hops out of the truck, leaving his crutches and his, his knife behind, and he hops into these the meat truck. He steals the meat truck. He rams the back of the prison truck and speeds off, heading towards the Rocky Canyon <sighs> Road near Reserve Street. There was meat in the truck, and the glove compartment had $200 in cash and a couple of cameras in it. So he kind of hit the jackpot by stealing that meat truck behind him. The delivery man and the associate warden hopped back into the prison truck and sped after Kenneth, along with another man in a paint truck that had witnessed the escape as well. They tried to follow Kenneth, who was speeding up into the Boise foothills, and the prison truck ended up stalling at the summit of a road, and they couldn't get it restarted. Witnesses in the area said that they saw the meat truck speed by in a cloud of dust with cube steaks spilling from the rear. Despite the pursuit, Kenneth had gotten away. And it was feared that he might uh, buy gas and he might buy a gun. He might break into one of these cabins and steal a gun. So they call so many officers to come and, and stop this escape attempt. And the search was one of the most intensive ever conducted in Boise's history. Spotter planes made regular circles above the hills looking for the green meat truck. And more than 50 officers from Boise, Twin Falls, the state liquor law enforcement agency, and other cities and counties poured into the hills, mounted on horses and and walking on foot. One of the commissioners investigating Kenneth's past saw that he had actually gone deer hunting in Boise before the Hollywood market holdup. So it wasn't out of the picture for him to head to the hills and know his way around. But he also made this joke about Kenneth saying the meat might keep him going for two weeks, even though he has to gum it because he has no teeth. So uh, we'll see seriously. that that is actually a factor here. Uh, the hunt for Kenneth is massive and roadblocks are set at every major road out of the city. There's fear that, you know, he would, he would be armed and dangerous. They had like 18 men at some of these roadblocks on September 25th. The truck is actually discovered at about 1 PM, 20 miles Northeast of Boise, about 50 yards off the road near the head of Daggett Creek on the Roby Creek road in the mountains of Boise. It was disguised very convincingly with tree branches and sagebrush. Kenneth was discovered at 5.20 p.m. just a few hours later within a quarter mile of the truck when a bloodhound named Mr. Rube is brought in. And the (laughs) hound quickly picked up Hastings' scent and directed the searchers right to Kenneth, who was hiding in brush. And Kenneth had seen, he had been watching the searchers, like circling his car. He was just sitting there up on a hill like watching them this whole time and when he saw the dog he knew it was up and he actually said that when i saw the dog i knew it was time to give up he raised his hands in the air and when he saw the dog coming his way he said to the captors i'm hungry i haven't eaten anything since i left here did you know about that ahead of time no i didn't in fact he uh, i knew that he was going to but i didn't know when and instead of going downtown on a thursday he went down on wednesday how did and, you feel about that? I said, well, whatever makes him giggle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> did you think it would be successful? 
Well, knowing him, I thought it would be. It would have been if uh, he hadn't broken his leg again. Because he was uh, in the uh, ground forces from the service. He was well decorated. And he was one of the most decorated people. And very self-reliant. And if anybody could have done it, he could have. And he, he would have uh, made it if he hadn't have broken his leg. If he was out on the escape, if he saw someone coming, he could probably outrun them or, or disguise or whatever. And in fact, he uh, had this, had hidden this pickup truck he was in uh, so well that the, the National Guard and the posses couldn't find it, not even from the air. They had the Air National Guard out after him, too. And so he was very self-reliant and very schooled in this type of thing. And how did they find him? Well, they got some dogs sent up from uh, Georgia, I think it was. And when they caught him, he was sitting there petting the dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So Kenneth had actually clipped his cast off with a pair of fingernail clippers. He was too afraid to build a fire to cook the steaks, and he knew it would be impossible for him to eat them without his teeth. So he actually... uh, (laughs) They asked him if if he had planned this whole escape, and he said no. It was just kind of a spur-of-the-moment deal. And he's led back to Siberia. Reporters ask how long Kenneth would be locked in Siberia, and Warden Lou Clapp says indefinitely. You might ask me the same question this time next year. A celebration is actually held in Placerville for Mr. Rube and his owner, Mr. New. Mr. Rube, of course, that hound dog that found him. Mr. And uh, Mr. Rube is actually addressed as Mr. throughout the party. And Warden Clapp actually what? went and provided a eulogy for the uh, great work of the capture of Hastings. And there are so many cute photos of them with this with family and friends. And one where Mr. Rube is actually biting into this, like, this turkey sandwich that they described as well-earned, and it was just one of many that he ate from a platter. And at one point, a uh, a massive bag of dog food was given to Mr. Rube as a gift, but he was so full of turkey, he hardly looked at it. <laughs> Mr. New, his owner, said, I think he's plum full. Why, I doubt that Mr. Rube would even take a cent right now, but don't try him, because he may be making just like an old Alabama possum. <laughs> Of course, Mr. Rube was brought up here from Alabama. He was estimated uh, to have captured nearly 100 criminals with his dog brothers and sisters. Anyway, I thought that was super cute. I'll post those photos of Mr. Rube and the celebration for this dog. Upon his return to the prison and his re-entry into Siberia, Kenneth called to speak with the warden to confess of a murder he had committed. He confessed that he had killed his partner, Ivan Baker, after the holdup at the Hideaway Club in September 1951. Warden Lou Clapp listened, and Kenneth stated, If you don't hang me, I'll commit suicide. Why this dire claim? Well, Kenneth said that the spirit of Ivan Baker had been haunting him. He told Clapp, If I can sleep soundly, it's all right, but when I'm half asleep, Baker sits on my bunk, grinning, but he does not talk. Kenneth said that while he was up hiding in the mountains, Ivan's spirit continued to just sit stand, and like stand and stare at him. And he would hunker over like the days when they used to uh, wrestle together. He would be in a grappling position at the foot of his bed. 
Warren and Lou Clapp decided to have Kenneth tested with a polygraph, a lie detector test, and when asked why Kenneth killed Ivan Baker, he stated that Ivan wanted to place Ruth Seconder in a house of prostitution. I knew he was bigger than me, and I couldn't fight him. After we pulled the tavern robbery, we drove to the Arco area past the atomic energy plant, and I led Baker away from the car and shot him four or five times in the chest and once in the back of the head. Wow. He said he used a handkerchief to muffle the sound of the gun and partially covered the body with sagebrush and returned to the car where William and Ruth were actually still sleeping. When they asked where Ivan was the next morning, he said that they had gotten into an argument and Ivan had stormed off and hitchhiked back to Seattle. Kenneth stated, It's my recollection that the place where I killed Ivan is several miles east of the atomic energy plant on the highway to Blackfoot, Idaho, and before entering the next town. I remember that we stopped at the next small town, which was several miles from the place where I killed Ivan. I also recall that from that place where I had killed him, it was possible to see the light reflecting from the lights of the atomic energy plant. I would judge that I killed Ivan about 10 p.m. the evening of September 5th, 1951. I had heard nothing to indicate that Ivan's body has ever been found. He dragged the body about 100 feet from the highway into the sagebrush where he he left him. And uh, a letter actually arrives from a brother of Ivan Baker after he read the news about this uh, supposed murder. And he's like, you know, I know that my brother was mixed up with Kenneth about that time. And I feel it was if he was still alive, regardless of what he did, he would let my mother and father know where he was in some way. He felt that the most important thing is to find the remains and give him a burial place. Warden Clapp actually responded with all the pertinent information where Kenneth said the body was and even offered Ivan's brother to come and interview Kenneth himself. But it's uh, I, I didn't see any evidence that he actually did that. Now, this is the time when the CIA is creating new chemical concoctions in their secret program MK Ultra, which was a study on chemicals to alter the behavior of human beings. And they studied university students, psychiatric patients, and prisoners in the United States and overseas. The most well-known chemical that they use, of course, is LSD, uh, acid. But one that was being used here in combination with hypnosis was sodium pentothal, also known as truth serum. In that 1977 transcript about the program, uh, they described the use of sodium pentothal and how it interacted as follows. A subject coming under the influence of a barbiturate injected intravenously goes through all the stages of a progressive drunkenness, but the time scale is on the order of minutes instead of hours. Outwardly, the sedation effect is dramatic, especially if the subject is a psychiatric patient in tension. His features slacken. His body relaxes. Some people are momentarily excited. A few become silly and giggly. This usually passes, and most subjects fall asleep, emerging later in disoriented semi-wakefulness. And it's in that state of semi-wakefulness that they lack control, and the uh, they basically they have the inability to really think up any lies. So that's why they call it the truth serum. Of course, this has since been debated if it's actually productive and actually works that way, but uh, Kenneth is actually given sodium pentothal three times, and each time he tells the same story. And we actually discussed sodium pentothal being used for alcoholics in, a, in your episode mm-hmm. previously. Yeah, Kenneth is the first inmate in the state to be administered the drug as a truth serum and not to help with alcohol addiction. Officers actually scour the area for a week, but they fail to find the remains. The search is off. 
With only a confession but no body, it's impossible to charge Kenneth with this crime of killing Ivan. But Kenneth said that after he admitted the murder, even though they never found the body, Ivan's spirit stopped haunting him. He could sleep soundly, which he would do as he bounced between Siberia, detention, and segregation cell houses over the next three solid years until September 11, 1957. He spent three years in punishment, away from the rest of the prison population, until his only visitor, Chaplain Orville Stiles, who would come in every Sunday and preach with him, hired him to work on the chapel staff that September 11, 1957. And Orville really liked Kenneth. If the chaplain doesn't become a friend to the men inside there, at least make himself available, they're not going to confide in him. If I hadn't made a friend out of Kenneth Hastings, I would never have been warned about that riot that was about to happen. Well, I guess I never told you that. He came in again a later time, and he shut the door. And I kind of wondered why I shut the door to my office, because men usually came in, sat and we talked there with the door wide open. And he sat down and he said, Partner, I want you to get out of here. I said, What's the matter? He said, There's going to be a riot. I said, Riot? Where? When? said, they're going to start it in the dining room at noon. I said, well, what's the, what's the problem? He said, well, he said, the food's getting pretty bad. He said, the potatoes this morning were American fried potatoes. He said, they were actually raw on one side, black on the other. They cooked them until they were black and then just dished them up. And he said, nobody ate them. And he said, there's going to be a riot. So I said, all right, you get out of the office, leave. I'll wait 10 or 15 minutes, and then I'll walk out front. Because I didn't want anybody to think. And I can tell it now, and it can be printed, because he died after he left there. After his release, Kent's attitude of the prison changed. He stopped attempting escapes and improved his interactions with authorities. He got into several different positions and started his own hobbycraft business. He was constantly buying materials from around the country and boasts one of the most impressive records of packages and contents received I've ever come across, including cow hides, goat hides, elk hides, blue dress materials, nearly 100 buckles and loops for belt making, gold plating, gold quartz, copper foil, several pounds of German silver, nickel silver, silver solder, and several boxes of goodies from family members, including like chocolates, cigars, licorice, toffee, handkerchiefs, figs, dates, olives, cookies, rich crackers, and even two pairs of pajamas right at the end of his incarceration. Wow. Now, what's going on with all this silver? How is he getting all this like silver and gold plating and stuff? Well, there's an oral history taken in 1992 with a former guard named Chesley Austin describing his work. And, and there was a problem with that. So I remember his name was Hastings. I might be mistaken that on name, but I think that kind of fellow's name was Hastings. But he was serving life imprisonment for something he did, committed murder or something. But he was a he made silver mounted saddles. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember one saddle that he made. Now he had all that silver come in. Sheets of it come into it. Then he took those, that silver and cut it up and made it into conchos and whatever material that he used to put on that saddle. And, uh, and as I remember, he got $2,400 for that saddle. He made the saddle and all up there. Hmm. Yeah. He made the saddle, he made everything. And made that silver mounted saddle. 
Same with bridles. Make bridles, beautiful bridles made out of silver mounted. Orville Stiles commented on the business in his oral history, stating that Hastings had money coming in, and uh, he started actually a loan business at 50% interest, and he ended up quitting his job at the chapel as not to make Stiles look bad while doing it. He was mad at Stiles for not stopping him in this business endeavor. Hmm. Kenneth is also involved in the prison newspaper The Clock, and here are a couple little poems that he wrote. Yeah, I'll just read the first one because it's really good. It's called Words from the Wise by Ken Hastings. Be kind to all, a wise man said, and intimate with few. Be sure to think before you give your confidence or you. True friendship grows but slowly and it must be tried to stress. It has to weather joy and pain to bring you happiness. So give your hand to every man, your purse to those in need, but only give your heart to him who is a friend indeed. Uh, he also posted a story called Four Roses to You, Mom, in January 1960 that's very sweet and just talks about how lucky he is to have a mom who would stick with him all all his life despite his criminal tendencies. Now, his release. Ah, whew, I'm almost there, Sky. <laughs> in June 1961, Kenneth actually applies for parole, and the board decided to pass him up until the 1963 board meeting. His stepfather, Oscar, dies in November 1962, leaving his mother widowed, running their laundromat and cafe by herself. The vice chairman of the Board of Correction, Mark Maxwell, writes to the U.S. Marshal that the board was considering releasing Kenneth in 1963, and he documented Kenneth's issues at the institution through the 1950s until September when he's released from Siberia of 57, when his whole attitude seemed to change and he had transformed into a model inmate. His supervisors wrote in a June 1963 work write-up that he was a good worker and a model inmate who was always willing to help on anything that's a benefit to Penn. I feel that he is ready for society. The chaplain wrote on his behalf that Kenneth regularly attended church, participated in AAA, and his bitterness is gone towards society, and his antagonism towards authority has also changed. I recommend a parole to the federal hold. In 1963, he went in front of the board and pled his case. He insisted that he would like to go to his mother's home in Seattle to help take care of her. She was a widow at nearly 70, and Kenneth insisted that if he was released to her home, he'd never leave again. He said the reason that he left home in the first place was because he never got along with his stepfather, who used to beat mother quite regularly, he said. He also believed that uh, with his mother to care for, he could make parole because He's old enough now to know better. Mm -hmm. One document from July 1st, 1963 by the prison sociologist Marvin D. Avery said, He has the asset of superior intelligence, vocational ability in his trade of machinist, in addition to ability in several other types of work, has a pleasing personality, and is thought that if he so wishes, he can make a very good adjustment in the outside community. It is still somewhat uncertain that he has finally abandoned a criminal career. There is some question on this. Outlook is considered hopeful, however. Finally, September 4th, 1963, Kenneth is released with his personal property, including a belt, a pencil, a comb, fingernail clippers, a cigarette lighter, a billfold, four letters, and $117.13 in personal money. And he's also given all of his hobby crafts, including a rifle scabbard, two saddlebags, a leather bridle, two hair bridles, a rifle shell belt, three purses, two secretaries, two wallets, 
two key cases, four hair belts, and one pair of spurs. Whew. The hobbycraft items in the institution were and continue to be a uh, very Western motif heavy. So this is kind of where all this leather work and wood burning things are. And if you come to the prison, you can come and look at examples of this in our administration building. He's released to McNeil Island to finish up his term there, and he's released from McNeil Island on July 21st, 1964, and he returns to his mother in Seattle, where he helps with everything, and he gets a job at the Puget Sound Bridge and Dry Dock Company as an inside machinist. Now, during the winter of 64 and 65, his health seems to deteriorate. He's fired from his job at the Puget Sound Bridge and Dry Dock Company on November 12, 1964, for his absenteeism. The state of Washington wrote a report that Kenneth failed to report on his parole on December 2, 1964, and at the time, he was complaining regularly to his girlfriend that he had chest pains and shortness of breath. She urged him to go to the VA hospital, but he refused. The Washington Board of Prisons wrote to the Idaho Department of Corrections and said that they were looking for Kenneth, that... When they contacted his mother, she reported that Kenneth had run off with his girlfriend. When they called her, she said she hadn't seen him in two weeks, but that he had been drinking heavily and was going with another woman who had nine children. She made sure that they knew he had been drinking regularly on parole, and which, of course, is a violation of his parole conditions. Mm-hmm. Finally, on December 22nd, 1964, Kenneth actually calls his parole officer and reports that he was with his new girlfriend and admitted to being on a binge for over three solid weeks and remembered very little as to what he had been up to. When he showed up to his parole office, he was shaky and showed signs of withdrawal. He said he was worried about returning to his mother's home because she and her friends also drank excessively. And the officer, he was so impressed with Kenneth's honesty and sincerity, you know, his openness with his inability to leave alcohol. He said that uh, it is seen that this action is typical of the alcoholic who slips. It seems that the important point is that during or following the hangover resulting from such a bender often beats the alcoholic's defenses down to such a degree as to render him open to receive help. It is felt by this office that Hastings has reached a point and is ready to accept help offered by Alcohol Anonymous through the Pioneer Fellowship House, which is a halfway house that he actually checked into. So he wasn't returned to prison. He stays at this house for $25 a week and seems to clean himself up and start looking for jobs. However, February 27th, 1965, Kenneth visits his mother And while with her, he begins drinking again. He started at 5 p.m., and by 6 o'clock, he had finished a fifth of whiskey. He collapsed on the floor in his mother's living room. She called for an ambulance, but it was too late. Kenneth was pronounced dead on arrival at 8.15 p.m. via the Rainbow Ambulance, and the King County Coroner report listed his death as acute alcoholism. He was 42 years old. That's not it. The story doesn't end until August 11th, 1968, three and a half years after Kenneth's death. Cactus hunters in Butte County near Arco stumble across skeletal remains hidden 112 feet from the highway deep in sagebrush, six miles east of Arco. The skeleton had weathered boots, a belt buckle, and a wristwatch, and the cause of death was an apparent bolt hole in the back of the skull. The remains were sent to the FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C. for tests, and it was confirmed 
this was the body of Ivan Baker. <laughs> oh my gosh. So that is the long life and career of Kenneth Raymond Hastings, number 8330, and his partner, William Owen, who you heard a lot from in this episode. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Awesome, Sky. Well, thank you. Happy season three. Yeah, happy season three. I mean, great job as usual. I don't I don't understand how you can find so much stuff. I I thought I was like, oh my my Flossy episode's gonna be like way longer than my other ones. Like this is gonna be great and then you just like blew me out of the water. Oh man. It's <laughs> luckily Kenneth Hastings there's so much information on him. You know, and I, I don't have it all, but I have about 130 pages of research that I've saved, plus, you know, countless court transcripts and everything else. There's a lot about this man, and he was in the news a lot, and there are a lot of oral histories that talk about him. I mean, he was a heavy in the prison yard. People did not mess with him or William mm. at all. Well, happy season three to everyone. This our, The rest of my episodes may not be as long, but... Hopefully we are really digging into the stories that you're interested in hearing now. Yeah, and when people ask me about ghost stories, like, here's a real one. Here's an inmate who is haunted <laughs> by his former partner. Ooh, so spooky. <laughs> Ooh, spooky. All right, well, awesome. I think this is a great start to season three. All right, well, thank you, Sky. We'll see you all next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Grey Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. If a person is allowed to develop their talents in a penitentiary, it would help. But so many, many instances are being held back. They poo-poo the idea that this person does have a talent. <laughs>